Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Joining today, she's a peak performance coach and life strategist. It's Jesse Torres. How are you doing today, Jesse? I'm doing fabulous, Alex. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what you like doing growing up. Oh, boy. Um, where I'm from? Well, originally from California. I'm now in Idaho, which I absolutely love. Uh, my family is from Peru. My parents immigrated here from Peru. Um, so I have a, a lot of family. <laughs> um <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I mean, as a child, I think my aspirations were to be a mom, honestly, be a mom and take care of the family. And, um, and that was about that. You know, I, th- I think I thought about being a, a teacher or a nurse, those kind of, um, thought process never knew that I would be where I am today. <laughs> growing up with a family from Peru, was there anything about the culture that you enjoyed doing growing up? The food. definitely love the food and um you know there's a lot of funny uh things that go with being you know latina and being a part of a latin family and some of the ways that they think in regards to rules and uh discipline and (laughs) things like that which i think i love i love honestly um i might not have as a child um, but I, I think that culturally there's, there's a lot of beauty there, uh, in regards to what the expectations are. Um, but the food above all Peruvian food to me is like the best. <laughs> were you a kid that got into the kitchen with the family members help cooked with them? Or were you kind of just, I rather wait until the magic happens. Well, no, when I was probably, I want to say by the time I was maybe 11, my mom was teaching me how to cook. And um, by the time I was 12 or so, I was asked to cook. So basically she was at work and I would be beginning all the the dinner. So I actually did get in there hands-on. I remember talking to my mom and saying, well, how much salt, you know, do I put? <laughs> and she, she would say in, in Spanish, I don't know, calcula, calcula, she would say, which means just calculate how much. And I was like, <laughs> so upset by that because I'm like, give me one teaspoon, two teaspoons to just say calculate. I don't know. And I would freak out about that, but now I get it. That was something I always enjoyed was cooking growing up. And I always t- asked my parents, I'm like, can I cook a meal? And they would always get worried because I'm a person that anything that's spicy, I'm going to be adding like the red pepper flags or hot <laughs> sauce. And my family hates spice. And oh, so- really? Every time I cook, I have to like think, what would they eat now? And not what I would eat because I would make everything spicier, sweet, saucy and all of that. But that was something that my family taught me. And I kind of keep going on in generations and take those recipes because that's something that is memorable that I still love doing today. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. I, I dated a guy that was like that where too much pepper was hot for him. Oh. It was so hard because I like put hot sauce or bite on a jalapeno or, you know, whatever, just to, to add flavor to, to any food. So it was definitely a challenge to think like that. Growing up, did you have anyone that was a big inspiration for you or someone that was a big motivator for you? Say, um, it's interesting. I, I, I guess I wouldn't have considered it inspirational. He was just my safety. Um, which would be my older brother. He just, I thought, was brave. You know, he learned English before I did, so I would kind of hide in his shadows, let him speak for me. Um, He always protected me. And so there was this, um, you know, almost an idolization about him and who, who he was. And then the other parts were like Peruvian singers. My dad used to listen to a lot of Peruvian artists and stuff like that, that I always thought was really cool. Uh, I, one person that I absolutely loved growing up and still do was uh, Lucille Ball. Okay. Always loved humor and how she did it. And I, I loved, loved, loved watching her shows growing up, watching her shows. And I remember when my kids were little, I put Nick at night and they had her show on there. And I remember watching them laugh to her, uh, her stories. And I thought, how cool is it that, you know, the laughter can be continued for generations. Um, so I always thought it was amazing, you know, what she did. And, and I thought it was really cool. 
The bond, the bond with your older brother, was that something that was very, you were able to be open with each other and be able to share things and he was able to share things with you or he was more that older brother that protected you in any situation, but that kind of open dialogue wasn't there. That's a great question. Um, I think it, he definitely was the protector and it was, we did talk about a lot of things, but I don't think we had conscious awareness to talk about like our difficulties, you know, or what emotional things we were going through. It was just more, we just leaned on each other. And then we had those periods of times where we would fight and, you know, yeah. but, um, but I don't, I, I don't think we, we didn't have the wherewithal or the understanding. I mean, then I, I was very, um, I mean, I want to say almost like a drone right through my life. I was in survival a lot. So I didn't know to, have a conscious conversation, especially about something I was going through that wasn't good, you know, and my, from my perspective was something that was um, dirty, you know, or just something you didn't talk about. So there's all the shame built around it. So it wasn't that I think that we, as we got older, we kind of started to live within our own mm-hmm. survival. And so and a lot of his, like going through teenage years, he was only 15 months older than me, but I was the younger one and the girl. And so we moved far away from our school. So anytime he wanted to do anything and I was to come, then he was limited because I had to be home before him. And so there was this dynamic, right? Of like, I kind of was a damper on his time. Um, so we just, I think, kind of went into our own worlds. You talked about being in survival mode. Did that take a big effect in you being a kid, a teenager growing up because of having that mentality of being in survival mode? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I was in survival mode uh, at home. I was in survival at school. Uh, I got bullied and, you know, I was, because I was in survival at home and I was having to navigate already you know, lack of worthiness or self-esteem based on what was happening. Um, now I'm at school and I have, you know, fear and uh, shy and and just, I just want to hide because to be noticed meant to get in trouble. It was my, my belief system. So it's better to be in the shadows. And then when I had this particular person who bullied me throughout my high school, um, for whatever reason, he just targeted onto me. And so I would literally walk around the school to avoid him. <laughs> so that because the minute he saw me, he'd just start in and was calling me all kinds of names. And so um, I definitely, it definitely rippled right into the rest of my life and how I behaved. Were you able to be open with your parents about what you were going through? Oh, no, they were the cause. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, um, initially you know my my father for the most part my my father um and my mom's um ignorance of it you know so it made me feel very alone in it and I didn't have the wherewithal when I saw my brother in sadness in his own sadness I didn't have the wherewithal to say hey here's what's going on with me mm-hmm. I was wanting to make sure he was okay and and part of what was going on just to bring clarity is, you know, I, I was being sexually abused by my father since my first memory. Like I don't, I don't have a memory where that wasn't the case. And as I started to get older, um, you know, it, it created this very difficult dynamic in our family. So I was dealing with what I felt was heavy and icky and, and my father didn't punish me if he didn't get his way. He punished my brother and my mom. So my brother would be in trouble and my mom would be crying. And as a child, I took that on as my responsibility. It's my fault that they're suffering. And so if I fought him off, then they would get the repercussions. If I didn't, then he was playing Peruvian music and he was happy and everybody got breakfast. And so I own that as my responsibility. So I didn't have the wherewithal to say, let's talk about this because I felt at cause. I felt I felt I was the reason that people were sad in the home. The big focus point with people leaving home is college education. Was that a time where you were looking forward to getting out of the house to kind of maybe having that fresh start or being away from the household and really finding yourself in those times? Yes and no. So yes, 100%. I couldn't wait till I turned 18 so that I could do what I wanted, but I didn't have the conscious awareness to 
do it with intent, mm -hmm. right? It was more a rebellious act. It was just like, I'm 18 now. You can't tell me what to do. You want me home at midnight? Cool. I'll be home at two. What else do you want? Because I'm going to go the opposite, you know? And it was kind of that rebellious spirit where, you know, my mom would cry and she'd ask me, why are you doing this? And I remember in the, in those days, I didn't have the words. I just stood there, looked at her and, but my mind, my thought process was what, how could you ask me that question? Like I, I, I need to be out of this house as much as possible because mm -hmm. otherwise I'm being hunted down. You know what I mean? So um, it was, it was definitely a, a time uh, where I adopted my own sense of rebellious spirit that said, I'm going to do what you don't want me to do. Um, and now I'm 18 and you can't tell me otherwise. Kind of thing. Did that really change the fact going long-term with your family, having that rebellious side, or that was just what you thought was the right decision and wanting to do? Did it change the dynamic? So you talked about how your mom was wondering why you were doing this to her and she felt like it was more of an attack. Did that really play an effect on how the relation was? You talked about how being in the household, it really took a damper on you. But after leaving and going in a new chapter in your life, did that really play an effect with the relationship after? 100%. I mean, my father, first of all, was obviously not happy, yeah. not happy that he couldn't have control of me anymore. And between my mom and I, um, and it's funny because I just visited her and we were talking about some of these dynamics because there's still some wedges, mm -hmm. right. That was built in all these years. And, you know, it, as oddly as it sounds throughout our life from her perspective in an unconscious way, I was the other woman. So there's this wedge. So when I'm now rebelling and going against the home, she's just like, why can't you just be home? You know, she wants me to duplicate her and be the mom and just find a husband and then everything will be fine. So mm -hmm. when I chose to do it differently, it de she it definitely short circuit her perspective of like, why, why are you a problem? Basically, you know what I mean? Like, why can't you just conform? And the more conforming that was asked of me, the more I went the other way. And, and it was a way for me to honestly, to gain my sovereignty, even though it might not have been the best decisions for me. Because ultimately, uh, once I started doing that, I didn't make the best decisions because it wasn't about the right or wrong decision. It was about going the other way than what my dad wanted, regardless of what that looked like. Looking at now, having that conversation with your mom, what is the dynamic like? How is that relationship now with that being in the past? Well, so it's a little tricky question to answer because there's bigger reasons why there was a wedge. Mm -hmm. So to put it in a short Reader's Digest version, my older brother, when he was 29, was murdered. Mm -hmm. I was 28. We're only 15 months apart. When he was born, that was my mom's first child. Okay. My father was already married with two kids. She didn't know anything about that. When she found out, she left Peru and came to America to leave him. Well, he followed her. <laughs> Basically went back home and then she was pregnant with a third, told them, you know, told his uh, young, older son, which was like five, you're the man of the house, told the wife, I'm out, followed my mom to America, told her that she, that he had divorced his first wife, which he never really did. And then he married my mom here in the States and he was still married to her in Peru. So when my mom had my brother, for her, it was her adoration. It was her first child. Mm -hmm. My dad already had to. So the, her enamored spirit over her son, again, prospecting, my dad didn't take that well. So my little, my older brother called my mom's attention. My mom was in heaven. He tell her, let him cry. He needs to take care of himself. Don't go after him. And so she was just like, so there was this thing 15 months later, I'm born. And when I get to about age three or so, whatever my first memory then he starts to absorb me. And so there's this weird thing where my mom, when he would pull me away, she clung more to my brother 
So there was this weird incestual thing happening <laughs> where it's like my brother was the other man and I was the other woman. And so he clung to me. She clung to him. Now she didn't abuse him, but she clung to him so much so. So when he died, um, it was monumental, obviously. Um, then there was me and my little brother. My little brother was 15 when my older brother was murdered and he idolized my older brother. When he died, my little brother, he just lost it. So basically he was looking for my brother in other people and he started to get in trouble and he would go in, in, in to gangs and he thought he found a family there, you know, the stuff that they sell you. And so he had been in and out of prison and, you know, at this stage of his life, he was doing the best he ever had. He was taking his daughter's six and seven-year-old to school, helping them out, picking them up. And then November of this last year, uh, he was murdered. Mm -hmm. So I have this dynamic where both my brothers are gone and I'm the one left. And there was this wedge between my mom and I to where now I'm here wanting to support her and help her. And she's resistant to it. And so there's the dynamic of like, I don't, I don't fit in the same model as my brothers did. And so she interpreted that as I'm jealous of them. And I'm just like, no, I just don't have understanding as to why you don't feel like, or give the, like if, if one of them were here and they said, Hey, come over and live with me, you'd hop on that first plane. But because it's me, there's this dissonance. And so there's a lot of different things that have kind of come in between us that what's beautiful at 83 years old, my mom, I had come to the realization that I'm not here to change her that. And I, I had a big long prayer about it because there was so many dynamics between her and my little brother and, you know, and how codependency and she'd cry to me and then she'd go help him do the things she didn't like, you know, by giving him money. And so it was just a dynamic where I was the one that was always bad. You know, mm -hmm. I tell him, look, do what you're going to do, but leave mom out of it. And he'd like, you don't know my relationship with mom, stay out of it. Right? And then my mom cries to me about what he's doing. And then the next week is helping him do it. So I'm just like, okay, I, I, I'm the bad, how am I bad guy here? <laughs> right. So there was this dynamic. So then now that he wasn't here, I'm like, okay, you know, mom, let's do this together. And there was resistance around that. I thought, you know what? I'm just going to love her. I'm not going to put my model of the world on her. I'm just going to be like, I'm just here to love her. I don't want to lose her. I'm afraid that she's going to die of sadness. And, um, and she's the one that called me. And she said, I know there's something between us. I want it to change. I love you. And so I was like, oh, okay. All right. There's an opening. Cause like, I was good. I, I had done my prayer, my prayers and, you know, really came to my own conclusion that I need to surrender and that her destiny is her destiny. And that I just need to love her instead of trying to fix it or have a solution to what I believe was a healthy solution to her problems. I just need to love her. And then she's the one that came forward with that. So I just recently, actually a week ago, um, came back from spending a week with her and it was really beautiful and we talked about the, the the jealousy dynamic we talked about a lot of things and it was really quite beautiful to be able to have these candid open conversations I don't know that she gets it completely she you know she hasn't done anything personal development but she's willing to have the conversations and we're willing to talk openly about it and I just don't think there's anything more beautiful than that and it's definitely a start towards the direction that you're wanting or hoping it leads towards. Completely. Yeah. During this time, you mentioned that the dream was being a mom and being a teacher. What was that direction for you? Were you able to reach that goal? Were you able to be a mother, get to that? Well, you talked about having your kids, but was that always the path or how quickly were you trying to get to that path? I don't know, you know, these are great questions, but honestly, I don't know that I had conscious awareness. It was just kind of an existence, right? Yeah. With a knowing that this is what I was going to do. So when I turned 18, like I told you, I rebelled and I met, met a gentleman who in all honesty, saved me from my situation. And I shared this story because it, it's pertinent to my journey, but I want to make clear that I have absolutely nothing but love for my ex-husband. 
and and that I live in only gratitude around all of it, even with my father. This is not to vilify vilify anybody. Um, when I was 18, I met this gentleman. And again, I was, my dad said midnight. I'd come home at two. He, we went out on a date. He brought me home at two. Dad was on the porch, furious, told him, you get in, you get out, told me you get in the house. He yelled at me, berated me, whatever, all night. And then the next day, my then boyfriend asked me, you know, what is up with your dad? You know, and I said, what do you mean? He was mad because you brought me home late. And he's like, no, 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 that was not an angry father. That was a jealous man. And what he did is he opened Pandora's box and he called out what I've been living my whole life. That when I was 16, I tried to tell my mother, but I used the word molest and molestar in Spanish means to bother or annoy. He twisted my words. My mom never brought it to my attention again. So at 18, now this guy steps into my world and he literally calls it out. And I probably cried for two hours and told him more than he probably needed to hear. But what happened is when he heard me and still wanted to be with me, my mind was already, you're gross, you're filthy. No one's going to love you. Who's going to want to touch you when you've been, you know, and the fact that he still wanted to be with me, I fell madly in love. And now I was 18, he was 21, and I still was running from my father when I go back home. So he got accepted to LAPD, and I decided I'm moving in with him. So I told my mother, and my mother of of good Catholic faith, which, no offense, I I honor everybody's perspective, but she was not going to have a daughter live with a man and not be married. So I moved out Monday, I was married Friday. Now... What we didn't know as two young kids in love, right? He had come from a very abusive background as well. His mother was an alcoholic. Um, He was the youngest of four, the only boy. He would come home to find his sisters unconscious on the floor. That's how brutal she was. Um, And so what we decided is he said, my kids will never see me drunk. And I said, my kids will never be molested. And we thought we fixed it. So we came into this marriage madly in love, believing that we were going to have the white picket fence, the dog, the cat, and the the kids. And for the most part, we did that. We did create that. But what we didn't know was the emotional trauma that we were carrying in this marriage. I knew how to be a pleaser. I knew how to keep the peace. I knew how to, you know, comply to not have anybody get hurt. And what he knew was how to yell and scream and, and obscenities and vulgarities to control because mm-hmm. that's how his mom was. So here we came into this perfect match, right? And um, my father would, you know, call us stupid and stuff like that. But so it was similar, but my ex was real vulgar and he would get real nasty. So it was similar, not quite the same, but close enough to where in my unknowingness, it matched what men do. This is what men do. Um, and subsequently what happened was after 18 and a half years of verbal, mental, emotional brutality, um, I was just a physical body walking. I was very apathetic. I, I was praying for somebody to blow the red light so I could be done because to take my own life would hurt my children. So I didn't, otherwise I would have. Um, and, uh, I, once I made the decision, which kindness, by the way, is what saved my life. It's what I talk about a lot nowadays, um, because we don't realize the power that we have uh, in humanity to be kind to each other and how that can change the trajectory of someone's life like it did mine. And when I was shown kindness, I didn't know what it was. It short-circuited me. I didn't even know to call it kindness. Uh, I just knew that these people were behaving in a way that I had not experienced. My father had told me that don't trust anybody. People want to get into your pants, which is what he was doing. And my ex said, just people want to subconsciously break up a good marriage. So don't talk about our marriage to anybody. So I always saw through those lenses and I would look down at the ground because my ex was very jealous, very controlling. So if I, if, if a box boy spoke to me, I would be in trouble. So I didn't make eye contact or anything. When these people were kind to me, I ended up taking a course in emergency medicine, um, I didn't know what it was, but what I knew is I couldn't wait to get to that Saturday class. And I thought, I don't know what this is, but if this feeling is available, then life is worth living. 
Mm-hmm. And what they did is they pulled together and I'll put money in because I ended up videotaping the course because uh, I ended up flunking because my ex broke his leg, blah, blah, blah. Um, I was able to audit the class. The teacher told me, I won't fail you if you promise to take the class again next semester. I jumped on it and I got to audit the class since it was emergency medicine, half of its lecture, the other half is scenarios. So I became the patient. So he was putting me under stairwells. He was putting me in bushes and everybody had to answer the moth 911 calls. Now, mind you, I'm very introverted. Shame is my emotional home and people are strapping me to a gurney. (laughs) So I'm just like, if my husband saw this, I'd be dead. Right. But their kindness, they all pulled money together and they bought me a Best Buy car because I created this video montage. Now it seems small, but to me, it was everything. It gave me a desire to live and it gave me the courage to get out of my situation. And once I did, I developed an insatiable hunger to understand humanity. I wanted to know why my dad did what he did, why my mom ignored it, why my husband did what he did and why I allowed it. And that's where it changed the trajectory of what I now focused on being is I wanted to help people not have to go through this pain. Were your kids at an age where they understood what was going on or were they still young and you weren't ready to share with them what was happening? With my husband? At the end of the 18 years, did your kids have an idea of what was happening in the household or were they kind of too young? Definitely because they were experienced it as well. But the problem was, is that I normalized it, Mm -hmm. right? I became the human shield. And so in that, um, it became just what they knew. They thought that's just what dads do. They get mad and angry and mom scurries around trying to make things right. Right. So they, when I decided that, that, that the marriage was not going to be able to continue or I was going to die, it was still like, I pulled the rug out under everybody because it's just like, what do you mean? This is what dad always does. Right. Because I tolerated it and I normalized it. And that made it really, really hard. I started to share my unhappiness in, in, in kind of preparation, but it was still a shock. I don't think they ever expected that our family would not be together. Looking at being a mother right now, what's the best part about being a mother for you? Oof, the best part, oh my gosh, I see them as partners with me. I see them as these three beautiful souls that, you know, we were, and I, this is why I'm grateful to my ex-husband. Like in life, there's always polarity, right? We need to know dark to know light, right? And he was the polarity. And again, there was beautiful moments. And as 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 deeply, as as hard as he was and as mean as he was, he was equally loving and deep and profound, taught me to look at the stars, taught me to believe of different things. He would look at his kids' shoes in awe that they were his children, Right. So there was all this dynamic. So it was confusing, completely confusing. But I think the, th- the four of us went through all of this because we're all committed to making a difference in the world today. So being a mom to me is the greatest gift I could possibly have to be able to bring human beings on this earth to live through service, to mag- mag- maximize their own potential, their own worthiness, so that they can help others do the same. And it, it came with unfortunately a lot of a lot of pain but i see us as one unit and and i'm I'm massively grateful if i could give thanks if i die tomorrow the one thing i would die absolutely happy with is my relationship with them the relationship that you have with your kids sounds like the similar relationship i have with my mom where it's that bond because of the parents came from or i came from a divorced family and i've always had that close relationship with my mom and people see how close we are. And it just shows over the trauma that's gone through that we end up getting closer and closer. And we are each other's like sidekicks, basically. We're like a team. But I value everything for her because she's made me who I am today. And I want to make sure I keep that relation every day, continue to talk to her. Because if the last day ever happens, I don't want it to end on a bad note. I want to always still be able to look at the positives, no matter which side. I want the fun times, the memorable side to come out. Yeah. Well, and you know, here's the thing. If it's one thing I've learned throughout all of this is that we are definitely not promised tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And if we can consistently act with that beautiful mindset that you have with your mother 
And if we can act that way with every single human we come in contact with, even the Starbucks lady, even the guy at the red light, that, you know, that we can literally make a difference in our world right now. You kind of talked about what you currently do today, but talk about a little bit more about being a peak performance coach and a life strategist. What's been the biggest mission you have with working with others? Well, in having gone through some very dark moments in my life, um, when I got that uh, enthusiasm to understand humanity, I just always had a pull for wanting to help people uh, not live in suffering. And, you know, through my own journey of unworthiness to getting to that point of wanting to die, you know, and real thinking that my my worthiness was that I was unworthy because of all the stuff I'd been through and what I believed about myself and what I took on as truth. And to get to a place where you no longer want to live like that, that's hard. And to know that there's other people that are going through that, it just gave me a call to, to want to serve people out of that pain. If I can do it, if I can crawl out of the depths of shame, I mean, honestly, I shame, I learned shame so well <laughs> that I would, I would literally, if I forgot, if I fell asleep, and went to bed and left the, the bathroom light on. I'd be all day beating myself up about how stupid I was and how I wasted money. And I can't believe, and I mean, I just, I literally would look for ways to shame and beat myself up. So therefore I attracted people into my world to, to, to prove me right. So I realized that I, I always had a desire to help. And so in, in my own journey of discovering how to desire life again, I wanted to be able to to pay it forward to others so they don't have to suffer it. What's been the kind of the reaction people are getting when they're sharing with you? Do they see a connection from their story with yours or are they able to look at it from a different lens and be able to kind of think from a different point of view? Well, I think that my story is only meant to serve that I understand the depths of these emotional traumas. Mm-hmm. Other than that, the focus in working with them is about them. And it's not about what happened. It's about the human experience and what we do when something happens, right? Like I, I help people with trauma and I, I say, you know, trauma, there's a misconception that it has to be like a big rape or something. I'm like, no, trauma is you know, a mom goes to the grocery store with her son and, you know, he's five years old. He's playing with toys in the aisle. She goes to the end of the aisle to get something. She can see him, but he can't see her. That Hmm. moment raises his head, anchors abandonment. You weren't there, right? Put that fear in him so much so that next time she goes to the store, he's a little clingy. He's a little bit more scared, right? Because the the human condition made made a meaning in that moment. I don't want to get left behind. And so now he responds from that place in his life, not knowing that this meaning was created in his essence that makes him fearful of being abandoned. So now he has girlfriends. He's afraid they're going to leave him, right? So he clings too hard. So then guess what? They do leave him because they feel, you know what I mean? So it's really in the work that we do, it's an unpacking of understanding your humanness and what happened because I believe we're spirits in these beautiful vehicles, right? And so your spirit is pure, right? The the soul is pure. It's beautiful. It's the essence of God. It's the essence of source, whatever your belief is. And then there's this human. And as we human, we start to have experiences and then we start to script meaning around our experiences. What we're not taught to do is we're not taught to see the other side of the story. Mm-hmm. Give you an example. So in my story, when I was little, I used to build traps to warn me when my dad was coming into my room. I, 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 I just felt I wanted to know. It didn't always stop him, but I, I felt somehow more comfortable knowing he was coming. So I can see that as tragic. I, how, how tragic that this little girl had to build traps to warn her of her father coming into her room, because that is true. But I can also choose to see this beautiful, brave little girl who was creative, who was resourceful, who was resilient, who, you know, had the courage to do something to help calm her spirit. Like that is also true. Mm -hmm. Both are true. One makes me feel sad and, and bad. And the other one helps me to fall in love with her versus judge her. 
for many years, I judged myself, my little girl. And I used to think you should, you, you, you should have kicked, you should have screamed, you should have peed yourself, you should have poked his eye, you should have done more. It's your fault. Right? And it's just like, man, until I was brought to my attention that I would never put that on any five-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> but I was doing it to me. Right? So if, if we can start to learn to see how any limitation in the human being today is a construct of the thread of their like divine choreography. It's a thread that's connected to a past meaning that was made that you might not be conscious of, right? So people say, no, I forgave my parents. No, I'm good. I'm all, I don't care, right? But that if there's any limitation, there's somewhere in the makeup that you made the meaning that you couldn't be limitless because I believe there's no limitation to the human being, only the belief that there is one. And when we're able to get to where the belief was created, we can unravel it and write a new story because either way we're right. With your career, do you see anything in the future that you hope to be able to participate in or do in your career? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I see, I see a huge stadium. I see a huge stadium of people coming together. It's a global ceremony. And it's in the works. It's in the works. It's going to happen. And in that bringing beautiful, inspirational speakers, uh, my sons are sound healers. So they they bring music to the world and they they do sound baths and uh, play instruments on people's bodies to help them release the energetics of trauma. And, um, you know, my daughter does Reiki. She sings. There's, there's just so much beauty in the four of us. I see us creating a global ceremony where we all come together, we have speakers and we have a sound healing of epic proportion. Um, Not only do we play music around the world, but we also have a specific song that we all sing at 1111 around the world. And at that moment, we are like putting an acupuncture needle to the world, right? And as my daughter put it, when we were talking about 911, she says, let's flip 911 on its head. And the reason she said that is because when 911 happened, the entire world was focused on those two buildings Mm -hmm. so much so that all of our energy went to it right and we say you know when we're where focus goes energy flows right so all our focus was there so guess what we're sending all our energy all our power to this tragic event how do we flip it on its head and how do we create a a monumental ceremony where we're all coming together in unity in song which is vibration right and creating a global unification and and really shifting the trajectory of our world because i believe that we're shown man's inhumanity to man right in the news in the media it's what we're shown it's what's crammed down our throats and so people start to feel hopeless like oh the world it's turning upside down it's horrible are you seeing what's happening this is your unprecedented times blah 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 what light i believe light is still winning Light is still winning or we wouldn't be standing, but it's not what's showcased. And I'm currently about to launch actually tomorrow, a uh, mastermind called Army of Angels. And my outcome for this group is to bring together people that are wanting to make a difference. I call it a boots on ground, meaning we are going to go and infiltrate areas that we want to make a difference in from anywhere from kindness coalitions, right, to holding someone's hand. Like it doesn't, to come together in a philanthropic focus does not mean you have to write a big fat check to make a wish foundation. I want it to be more of a hands-on approach where we're actually building homes, you know, for people, for, for, you know, orphanages or whatever. And we're bringing together these minds to come together so that we can start to shine light in the world with one act of kindness at a time. I love hearing about that where, I'm all about the philanthropical aspect, more doing something than going the easy route and giving a check. I think you make such an impact when you're standing next to that person. And you're kind of the example you reminded me of is I worked with um, families with someone who had ALS. So just going to their household and helping with anything that they need and really learning from the family members and through the patient, what they're going through and being a part of that, even if it was for an hour, I wanted to make a difference and help any way I can. And I love that you talked about that because that's something that I can relate to is I want to be out there and helping any way I can. 
And I think it's so important that everyone should experience that. And if they are able to give back, give back and be a part, don't just write a check and think, oh, that's just the easy way of doing it. Because that person's not going to see who you are giving. They want to be interact and meet that individual and really learn about them. Very much. And I hate to say this, but at this stage of the game, you don't even know where that money's actually going. Yeah, You know what I mean? And and is that child actually getting a sweater on their back? You know what I mean? And so how do we create? And, and again, it's unfolding as I bring the collective group together to come up with ideas, because I believe that one of the outlooks that I have about it is, is just being a disruptor, right? In the philanthropic perspective. Yes, mm. there's a lot of amazing things we can focus on, but how do we do things differently? How do we create coalitions to just sit with the elderly? And just, you know, they don't have family, elderly or wounded warriors that don't have family that are alone. And we just sit and spend time with them, hold their hand, listen to their stories, like these kind of things, you know, or, or pick a a person that is um, offered to us that needs help, a woman that's stuck in a domestic violence situation. And we just have somebody sponsor her to be, to get better, to a better place, to, to raise her own life, you know, and have that somebody by her side, believability. And one of the things my little brother, uh, I believe, has left with me because in my in my deep sorrow in November, you know, as I'm going through all this, I'm 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 actually praying and I'm asking God, like, if if both my brothers are meant to be taken in this tragic way, like, what what is it you're looking for from me? Like, what am I left to, to do with this pain? And one of them that I feel very profound about uh, for my little brother is fatherless children. Right. So he left nine children behind. These are nine children that will not know their father. And from that, it's like this is a big problem in our society, that there is no mentorship. There is no masculine energy that's there to be able to guide them in a way that a man could. And so how do I know there's big brothers and there's stuff like that. But how do we partner as an army of angels and send and and choose families where one of our men gets to sponsor that family and be the father figure to this family that doesn't have one and and to be able to inspire that child. And I think that that is a big one that I would love to focus on. But these are again, these are things that we want to start to do it differently. I even want to have a different conversation. I believe that love and I was personally told that love is cool Jesse nice it's a nice you're a nice girl but love doesn't pay the bills and it's something that is made small in society our acts of kindness are made small it's like oh that's really cool I mean it's nice and all right and now I'm like look if you don't love your clients you will not have any If you don't love your employees, they will not be connected to your mission. And if you don't love your family and friends, they will leave you. So tell me this flippant thing is not about love, right? And why do we watch random acts of kindness and literally come to tears? We watch those commercials and it touches something deep inside of us because our innate nature is to love. Mm -hmm. And we are dying to find a way back to that. Instead of looking through the lenses of, everybody's rotten and everybody's out to get us. And that was part of the conversation with my mom because of the life she's experienced. This is how she sees the world. She doesn't trust anybody. Everybody's out to get her. She's got a story around everything. And I even told mom, if you wear green colored glasses, how will you see the world? She's like green. And I'm like, yeah, this is how you're seeing the world. And look, I get it. She watches the news and she's like, Oh my God, Jesse, the world's terrible. And I said, no, mom, it's not. There are terrible things happening, but the world is not terrible. It is still more good than it is bad. You got to choose what you put into your mind. And I'm committed to showcasing the heroes out there in the world, the people that want to come together and make that difference. People like you, Alex, that really want to just have his hands-on approach then let's come together. Let's create something incredible and let's start speaking love from the rooftops. Let's start talking about loving each other, even as men, right? Like don't do that. All these rules put against it. We got to start questioning when we're put into a box, when we're put into this state of like, oh, don't do that. Or it means blank. If it has anything to do with love, we got to check in with that. Who's making those rules? Who are they? (laughs) right and what do we decide as a society as a human being as a heart-focused warrior 
How do we choose to show up in the world? Do I hide my love? Do I not say I love you, brother? Because I'm afraid you might think I want something more? Or do I choose to just spread more love around the world? And that's what I'd like to create through, through the arm of angels. We're going to talk it. We're going to speak it. We're going to shout it from the rooftops. And we're going to disrupt the way philanthropy is done. I'm excited. Just hearing that, I'm just excited to see everything you guys are all going to do to make a big difference. Something our listeners like to do is learn even more about the guests. We've been on this journey about your life. What's something you love doing today that maybe you haven't talked about? Is there a hobby, a passion that you enjoy? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, Besides work. Besides working, I know. Besides it's working. It's so funny when, when you are really passionate about something, you don't consider it. <laughs> it's usually work, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, no, I love I love inspiring people. I love hosting events. I love what, when people come together and they're not afraid of vulnerability. It's like I was just talking to a client who he just became a client. And this particular one is a one-on-one client, which I don't have many of um, by choice. Uh, and he came on board and it was our first call and he goes, wow, we jumped right into the deep end. (laughs) (laughs) Did I forget to mention that that's what we do? We go right into the deep end. That's what we're in here for. (laughs) You know, he's like, I'm all about it. Um, and so, because I feel like deep conversations, camping, I love camping. I love the outdoors. I love hiking. I love, you know, connecting to beauty, um, you know, I have aspirations of going to see the Northern Lights in Norway. I, you know, I, I want to see the wonders. I want moments of awe is what I want. And moments of awe to me are something as simple as the giggle of a child. You know what I mean? Like those awe inspiring moments that we take for granted because we're so busy being worried. You know what I mean? That we miss it. We miss the sound of rain. We we complain about it. Oh God, it's raining again. Have you ever just sat and listened to the sound of rain? It's like beautiful, right? Yeah. And again, we need it for our world. We need it for our nation. But we don't think that way. We don't take it. We don't give thanks for those things. So I want to live and and feel and experience as many moments of awe that I possibly can. And and nature's a quick way to do it. Even my dogs, you know, just sitting and and seeing them and and seeing their unconditional love, and you know, moments like that that to me are are, are heart opening. And one of the things that I love and I drive my events from is Howard Thurman's quote, and he says, you know, don't ask what you can do for the world, ask what makes you come alive, and go do that because we need more people to come alive. And I so love that because I think that in our society where we are suffering, we're, we're, we're dead inside. We're numb. Like, I feel like COVID, it wasn't so much COVID. COVID woke up the pain body. Like all of a sudden it's this thing to get attached to. And if you don't think the way I do, you're uneducated and mentally ill. It's just like, what? Where did that come from? This is like from a spiritual community. You're just like, wow, like that had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do. do with unhealed trauma that was now in our perspective the final question i'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge absolutely first of all belief 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 you got to believe you can and if, if, if you need inspiration, just Google, you know, underdog story, Google, you know, the, the, the person that, you know, persevered beyond all odds, it's out there, there's stories. And if one human being can do it, so can you. So you got to have that belief first. The second thing is fall in love with the challenges. If you had a conversation with God and God said, you know what, look, I know this is challenging. I know this sucks right now. I know that it's bad, but here's the thing. I know what's coming, right? Like when I was building traps for my father, I didn't know I was going to need creativity, resourcefulness, resilience when I was going through my divorce because my ex was not happy and he was making death threats and it was very scary. So when I was a child, I was building the muscle I was going to need in the future. I didn't know that. We don't get to know it. But what you get to do is look at challenges as a way to build you, to mold you, to shape you. God's giving you muscles because God doesn't give you when you pray for courage. He doesn't give me the courage. He doesn't give you courage. 
He gives you opportunities to be courageous. He doesn't give you strength. He gives you opportunities to be strong. So if you can look at challenges, for me, coming out of my marriage, I unconsciously, I didn't do it consciously, I'm honest to say that, I unconsciously put things in front of me that were scary. I challenged myself because I was so scared that I knew if I was going to survive, I had to do things that were uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so I put myself in things that scared me, freaked me out. You know, I, I joined an improv class. I, I did a Spartan race. I did, you know, I, I, I hiked the Grand Canyon and freaking out, didn't feel in shape. You know, all, that thing, all these things that challenged me because those challenges helped me grow. So if we can stop looking at our challenges as it's happening to us and start looking at it as it's happening for us and from us, right? How did we attract this in so that we can build a deeper muscle, ask better questions like, hmm, what is the good in this? What could be great about this situation? And I know sometimes it feels like there's nothing good and I get it. So I said, ask what could be good? Maybe God's calling me to build bigger resilience. Maybe God's calling me to, to build a muscle that I don't know I have. Because sometimes we don't know what we've got until our knees hit the floor. So number one, you got to believe it. Number two, don't be afraid of challenges. See them as a beautiful way to help build the muscle that you're here to build and keep moving forward. And the last thing I would say is reach out. Reach out and talk to somebody. There is tons of information. There is tons of availability for help. Don't go it alone. You weren't meant to. There's somebody out there that understands. Jesse, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we are excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it being here. And thank you so much to your audience for listening. Tune in next time. Hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to get the full-length episode and video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.